0: What does financial freedom mean to you? What does financial abundance mean to you? And it actually is. We need to take a strategic step of peeling back. Like, what is the amount?
1: About each and every property, whether that needs to sell or not. And the first and the most important question is, how long have you held this property for? Has this property grown in value? If it's not grown in value, is it going to grow in value? What key indicators are going to... Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy Property Podcast. Today we are going to talk about questions that an investor should ask themselves when buying the next investment property. Now before we get into the topic and talk about everything in relation to these questions, drum rolls, let's introduce the co-host, the great Miss Cheryl. Cheryl, how are you today?
0: I am amazing. Crack as well. I can hear it. I think it I am incredible, Moss. I love all these topics that we that we come up with uh, because they're so relevant. I mean, I, I got asked this question just over uh, the weekend and, and get, it comes up so often that, you know, people have purchased their first investment property or maybe their second and then they go, how do I get to my next one? Like, and, you know, it, maybe they to getting some equity in their first property and they're going, oh, what? what's next, right? So that's what we're going to be talking about today is how do, we, how do we progressively build that portfolio and what to consider.
1: And typically that's the thing, right? I mean, people who have done well, they don't know why it went well. And so they're like, okay, how do I replicate this, right? And so I have this thinking in my head that you know, while Australia has this massive love for property investing, you know, when you look at the data, it's only like 2% of the property investors who actually get to the top of the property investment ladder, And so not everyone knows, like majority of the times when I speak to clients, either they are struggling to hold one or two properties, or they'll buy their principal place of residence, and that's the end of it, right? And they'll consider that as a retirement fund. And so there needs to be a list of questions that they need to ask every time they are going to go out there and make an investment decision so that the poor property portfolio can be sustainable and scalable in a much more structured fashion.
0: Yeah, I like to premise this as well to go, it's not a, it's not about the n- most number of properties you can get, right? And everyone's always like, you know, is it, do I need to get 10 properties or whichever? It's not. And we've talked about different strategies to be able to generate high yielding investments as well. So, a large number of properties is not always necessarily the best outcome. So, you know, this is to be able to go, yeah, you probably need more than one property if you want to retire off the incomes, right? And make sure you're buying the right type of property. And that's what we're going to get into.
1: Yes. And I think that's a good segue about how many properties, right? And so, ultimately, the question becomes, you know, do you have a property plan? Or, you know, what I like to call it is, you know, what's your goal seek? You know, what is the goal that you're trying to seek? What is your overall property investment strategy? You know, is it detailed? Is it mapped out? You know, have you done that financial analysis of risk appetite versus cash flow versus net worth? And what are the what are the ultimate goals that you're trying to achieve from a passive income and the net wealth target perspective? It's not just about you know, buying X number of properties that is going to take you to retirement, right? You know, people have this sort of stereotype and going through their head that, you know, I need 20 properties or 30 properties, because that's how, you know, a lot of investment advisors talk. Ultimately, your ambitions are going to indicate what your future financial commitments look like, your tax plan, and bringing all that together through property in a vehicle, where you can grow sustainably, And scale sustainably, right? Typically, that's what you're looking for.
0: I just like to add to that. I don't think a lot of people have a clear idea of what they're wanting to create, right? And I'm not even talking about property investment. I'm like, even in their lives, like we're so caught up. I mean, I think a very, very small percentage actually step back, and I'm talking about this quite a lot. Step back and assess where, what am I heading towards, and you know, I, I ask the question of people often. I'm like, what are you trying to achieve? And they're like, financial freedom. I'm like, well, what does financial freedom mean to you? What does financial abundance mean to you? And it actually is, you know, we need to take a strategic step of peeling back. Like, what is the amount? I think what you're saying, what is the amount that, that, that allows you to get to that point and then reverse engineer? what investments, and if it's it's property, how many of those properties do I need to get? What type of properties?
1: And it's such a facade, right? And I think, I mean, a lot of investment advisors that are out there, they use property plan as a mechanism or a way to lure people into helping them buy properties. But, you know, they don't do an intensive actual financial exercise, right? You know, there is no financial modeling done on people's exercise to understand really what are their present financial commitments, future financial commitments, and how? what type of properties are going to get them there, right? It's all about, you know, pretty PowerPoints. It's all about, you know, nice PDFs and a good Prezi presentation um, that basically lures them into. But you know, the the value is in actually looking at the numbers and letting the numbers dictate and decide your risk appetite, your ambitions, and where you want to get there. And, you know, I've said this numerous number of times that everyone's plan is different. You cannot replicate Someone else's plan, and so you need to know what your plan is. You know how old you are, what your risk appetite is, and that plan is going to evolve as you grow, have kids, get married, get old, right? And where are you starting this property investment journey in your life is quite important. And so, it's it's, it's very important that people take a step away, you know, before even thinking about buying the next property.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's easier said than done to be able to say, you know, take a step back and and figure out where you want to go. I find most people, if they, if um, they don't, what have that, even sort of financial literacy, and this is not to poo poo anyone, right? We weren't taught to be financially literate. We weren't taught in school to invest or build businesses or anything else. So there was no real, apart from you know doing your multiplication, you're not taught how to be financially independent. So. You know, unless, unless people have taken that step towards that, they don't actually know what they're working towards or what they figure. And so I do feel that in nine out of 10 times, it is really valuable to have someone who understands that facilitate that process for you. And even more so when you, you do find yourself in a relationship, right? And we've talked about this in previous episodes around, you know, what happens at different stages in your life you'll find that different people obviously are going to have different risk appetites. Then different people are going to have different ideas of what what financial independence or financial freedom, you know, you might have someone that says, my kids are going to go to the private school and the other one goes, no way, they're not going to private school, I want to homeschool them or whatever that might be, right? And so having a third party who is unbiased and, and is able to, it's almost like a, an investment counselor and not an investment strategist, right? Because you've got to balance different opinions and different objectives to be able to come up with something that works for, or, you know, whether it's an individual or a couple or a couple or a couple with children. Exactly. It's going ultimately, where do you want to work towards? Where are you now? Where do you want to work towards? But you can't come up with a plan or goal seek until you know what that goal is.
1: Definitely and and exactly to your point I think you know people don't realize that that service is available you know we provide that service to a lot of our clients on a day-to-day basis but ultimately if you don't have a plan in place you're shooting in the dark right you don't know you're following the formal you are following the herd basically that's what you're doing right I have this perfect analogy that one of my mentors used uh, and this is like you know you're going into a nightclub, which is dark, and you're winking at everyone and you know and you, you don't know where the girl is, right <laughs> basically that's exactly what you're doing, right? Uh, because you don't know what you don't know, you know you might
0: whoever well, just your wink was you know what whatever gender that
1: means Yes, correct and so I think it's it's a very it's a very cool analogy, you know, to understand why a property you know, strategy is quite important. And so following that wealth creation metrics comes in quite handy. If we take the next step, it's also about understanding where does your portfolio sits right now? And so of course, you know, as a part of the property plan, you, would, you should do that. You should assess where your property portfolio sits. But a lot of people fall into this policy of holding properties forever, fingers crossed, hoping to the gods of property that the property is going to grow, right? And so ultimately, the next step in, you know, asking these questions to you is, you know, does my portfolio needs to change? Does it needs any remedy? Does it needs anything different? You know, what is my portfolio needs right now is a very important question.
0: Yeah, this is incredibly important. I feel, you know, there I, I do see that there's a camp for holding property forever, right? And then there is another camp, which is, a bit more transactional. Which camp are you in?
1: I I think every property has its own um, way of telling. Like there are are key indicators that would tell you how long do you need to hold property for. I always treat property as another investment class, right? And so the transactional nature of property investing may be different to shares, you know, because you buy and sell shares with the timeframe of a day or two or a month cryptos is minutes and hours, right? Property might be six or seven or eight years. And so if you've got that 70, 80% growth in the first six, seven years, why don't you sell and basically move on and do it again, right? Ultimately, how fast you want to grow your property portfolio depends on that, right? But you don't have to do it forever. You know, I think if you have a good seven to eight year run in your property portfolio, making the right decisions, even wrong decisions, but identifying the wrong decisions and correcting it quickly, you would get to where you want to get to. A lot of people fail because they make a mistake and they wait for that mistake to correct automatically. And so they don't really treat their property as a business or their property journey as a business. You know, they treat this truly as a passive income. And so, you know, like any other business owner, you know, you find a person who is non-performing, you're not going to wait for them to you know, one day wake up in the morning and have this sort of dawning on them that they are going to be the high performer in the team, right? Property is exactly that. It's not performing. You move on, you know, cut your losses, move on.
0: What are some of the key things to look out for when when it's a, a red flag about your portfolio needing to be corrected?
1: Look, typically, um, and we've done this episode, you know, previously, I think we talked about this property portfolio fixer and it's sitting on my website as well, that asks you structured questions as to, okay, about each and every property, you know, whether that needs to sell or not, you know? And the first and the most important question is, how long have you held this property for? Has this property grown in value? If it's not grown in value, is it going to grow in value? What key indicators are are you going to look at to give you that confidence that it's going to grow in value? If it's not going to grow in value, Can you sell it without causing any losses to you and come out of it? If you can't sell it as is, can you create an exit strategy for yourself? You know, could you, you know, change the configuration, do a subdivision or something along the lines, you know, to uplift the value, to give you a clean exit? What does that look like over the next six months, 12 months? What is the opportunity cost at that price point? You know, if you're holding a million dollar property that's not grown in value because, you know, it's next to train lines and power lines with the big massive easement running through the property. What is the benefit of you holding this property? You know how much are you losing as an opportunity cost? And so all of these questions are very structured questions. And so when I talk about that property portfolio fixer, that basically gives you a single snapshot that these questions you should ask about every property every time you're going to buy the next property for the property portfolio that you have. And that would give you a really clear direction whether this property is going to give you the benefit that you really want in your investment property life cycle or you should just move away and cut your losses and onto something else.
0: Yeah. And I know we we did that years ago when we first bought negative geared property. It was so cool at the time. And and one of the negative geared properties was in um, a one-bedroom studio. And I went, I don't think it's going to perform very well. Yeah, with... with it, it it increased a little bit. We got some income out of it, but it was, we found that there were more apartments being built. It was getting older. We got to, you know, strata and things like that. So that, that for me was a clear indicator that, that, uh, you know, that property needed to be disposed of. And, and it allowed us to go into other things. So I don't necessarily think that you need to hold property all the time, but I do think that you should assess and make all the right sort of checks to see if you, you know, are there different ways to increase the yield, are there different ways to, to so that you can hold on to it and, and take advantage of any equity, equity increase. But yes, you need to be able to assess that.
1: The important thing also is that when you're thinking about your property plan, right, your property portfolio is not going to always require growth. You know, if you're 55-year-old, you don't care about growth, right? You're like, who cares? You know, or you're 60 years old. You don't care about growth. You'd be like, well, you know, if I'm going to wait another 10 years, I'll probably die, right? Touch wood, God forbid. And so the, the thinking mechanism changes like people, and I'm not trying to be negative here. I'm trying to, you know, take a very extreme position around this. But, you know, naturally people favor different things at different times, right? So. When I'm young, I'll be focused more on growth because I want to scale my property portfolio. I'm making enough money. I don't care about saving. I'm going to reinvest continuously. And so I'm going to take more risks. As you mature, you have a family in place, you know, your money going out because of the outlays in relation to expenses, you would favor more towards, you know, uh, cash coming back into your property portfolio, but you still want that growth. And so that balance needs to be there. As you grow towards your maturity or towards retirement, you start focusing more on you know cash flow coming back. You know you're like, well, net wealth is great, but you know I'm not going to really. This is me now talking about generational wealth, right? This I'm not going to use this. You know, if I have a ten million dollar portfolio that only generates fifty thousand dollars in net income, then what good is it doing me, right?
0: Who's going to enjoy it? It will be your your children that sell the property.
1: Yeah, and so ultimately, you know, that's why one of the reasons it's not just about. You know, correcting or remediating your property portfolio. It's also about thinking: How is your portfolio? Is your property portfolio progressive enough? Is it moving in the right together with your life choices as well? And so that's why asking these questions every time you're going to go out and buy a new property is quite important.
0: Yeah, and how often have we heard, particularly you know, retirees say they are asset rich and cash poor?
1: Yeah, I mean. 100%. 100%. And you look at all of these tests that the government has, right? All of these are asset tests. They're not in like, yes, there are some of them are income tests as well. But they penalize you or penalize you to have more assets in place. You know, they want you to create more passive income for yourself. And so it's an, it's an interesting dilemma. And so you should always think about, okay, what does, does my portfolio need to change or does it need to remediate? The next one in line would probably be having your a team in place or if you don't have an a team in place you know making sure that you speak to or organize that you know the a team and i know we've talked about what does a team means in previous episodes but you know what do you think like i would usually you know if i talk about myself you know my first point of call is usually my finance broker right and i'll be like oh my accountant and broker tell me what i can afford what i can buy And then property investment advisor, you know, talking about the property portfolio in general.
0: I'd say the first thing is to not necessarily go to your friends and family to begin with, right? And they may be doing well in property. But again, like you said, their strategy might be different to yours. Their their personal situation, income situation, their asset situation is going to be different to yours. And so, take whatever advice they've given with a grain of salt but definitely reach out to and and just to be able to educate yourself I I don't think there's anything wrong with education and knowledge absolutely but be able to go right who you know professionally and your broker and a good finance broker not someone who just says I'll find you the cheapest rate someone who's strategic because you, you actually want them to say to you, "Where are you trying to get to?" So that I can ensure that I give you a strategy from a finance point of view to get there as well. So every everyone that you organize in your A team, you want them to be like your finance team, right? Your finance and, and wealth team. Each of them. Well, that's how I. Uh, that's how I know that they're they're good. Is when. They say, Cheryl, before we get there, I want to know where you're trying to head towards. I want to know what you're trying to achieve. That's when I know they can help me work backwards. And particularly if the broker and the accountant know each other well, they really then understand your fine, you know, your financial position and what can be done to to help you accelerate that and give you a strategy. And we'll say the word strategy a lot because it is it's a strategy, it's a plan.
1: And there's nothing wrong in putting your hand up and saying I need help, right? And there is a very famous proverb where it says, you know, the lives, the biggest lives are built on the shoulders of the giants, right? And so typically, if someone has achieved what you want to achieve, then typically that is the person that you should be listening to in the first place as to, okay, how did you get there? What did you do? How can I be like this? And so if The broker does it. The accountant does it. You have a good property advisor. Convenience a property manager, building and pest inspector. Everyone should be on your A team so that you know as to, okay, you know, these are my go-to people as soon as, you know, I I hit the ball running or, you know, as soon as I hit the ground running in relation to making these, you know, decision points.
0: Yeah. And once you've got this team, this is the question we get asked all the time, right? This is the golden question where do I buy?
1: Yes, yes. And it's always the location, right? I think it comes down to, okay, where do I start? And, you know, naturally, if you talk about, you know, a lot of mom and dad investors, you know, the first place they start is within the five kilometer radius of where they're living, right? Because their natural sense is, oh, I want to go and look and feel and mow the lawns and all of these things. And again, you know, we've done this whole episode around how to do suburb finding, how to do locations, etc. So, I'll ask the users to definitely go back and, you know, go through that due diligence checklist around finding the suburb and the right suburb and how does the demand and supply plays its part. But typically, you know, if you if you think about this in a much more logical sense, even while keeping the data aside, a lot of these should be you focusing on the neighborhood. Ultimately, what you're trying to find is areas where people want to live, areas where, you know, people are dying to live. Because that is what's going to grow up in value because people would be emotionally invested in these areas, right? And, and that's the simplest sort of common knowledge that you would think about when you're selecting the location. Don't listen to everyone is a data expert these days, right? You know, you pick up a rock and everyone is a data expert these days, right? So, What
0: kind sort of rocks are you picking up, Moss? <laughs> the saying is true, location, location, location. And one of the things that that typically drive people to move to places, what do they look out for? Transport, amenities, hospitals, schools. And if there's new infrastructure, uh, well, there's there's infrastructure for it. So those are the the main things. So if you want to go sort of look at a map and be able to go, let's just circle the places that has at least four or five of these things, right? And if you were to track how they've grown over the past, you know, past decade or so, you'll probably find people want to be close to transport. They want to be close to, fairly close to university, you know, not right next door, but close.
1: The biggest problem that the investors face is that, you know, one, they are not ready to put in the hard yards and finding these locations, right? And so the easiest possible way for them is to look around and see where some of these analogies fit. And, of course, that's with outside the bounds of their price point because, you know, the yields are quite low and the prices have already gone up. And, and that's where they start making a lot of these, you know, decisions around, okay, I'm going to buy in a growth corridor which is yet to come up and, you know, I'm going to book a land there and build there in four or five years' time. And, you know, they fall through those cracks of making these, you know, terrible mistakes. You know, you have to put in the hard yards in finding the right location, especially if you're going to do stateless investing you know i'm not saying borderless but stateless investing you're going outside the state and basically you know investing in you know different states and so those hard yards needs to be there and you need to find those right locations in place you know ultimately there is a detailed checklist of you know what needs to what you need to look out for when it comes to location but you are exactly right you know those are the five key areas where you should definitely start when you talk about location
0: and uh, I know that we we've, we've we've addressed this in a, a fair bit of detail, but you know if there are so many places to to pick from in Australia absolutely the The point is to not get so paralyzed with uh, analysis of things as well. Sometimes it is a, a a It is about taking action, but calculated action. If you have your team around you. Then again, if you've got the right people who are your brokers, your accountants, your 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 property investment advisors, you've got these right people that you're running through these properties and investments through. You own, and that they're they're knowledgeable. They'll give you feedback as well. It's when you're doing this by yourself. I think that's when you're you're going in not only blind, but not not really being guided by anyone else. I, and I feel that's when. Most of those mistakes get made.
1: Definitely, and naturally, the next question becomes: What type of property to acquire? Right? You know, there is growth and cash flow, or super cash flow and growth, and properties with development potential, or full scale development potentials, or should I buy something for renovations? Ultimately, there is so many different types of properties, and I'm not even going down the detail of okay, what type of properties I'm talking about, or, or what kind of properties I'm talking about, like. Investment types, basically, that's what we are focusing on, right? And people fall into this sort of analysis paralysis all the time. And the question here is, what does my property portfolio need right now in order for me to continue scaling my property portfolio? And that answer would be different for everyone, right? Some people would require growth and cash flow property. Other would require super cash flow and they would be focusing more on co-living or commercial or in DIS or whatnot, you know, adding that significant cash flow coming back. And then there are others who are trying to create a business out of property. And so they might be looking at ways to tap into, you know, development side of things or they've already done that and they're moving into full scale development properties. And so there are so many ways to cut this cake that I almost feel that there is a separate episode where we can talk just about, you know, what property should I buy next in my property portfolio that would add so much value to people.
0: Absolutely. And, and this will all come back down to your strategy as well. Who so, are, uh, drawn to that? What, what I would say is make sure you are educated on the different types of properties that are available and that it's not just a single household residence and that vanilla stuff. Because generally, yes, that's what everyone gets drawn to. But is that, you know, is that really the best thing for your for your long term strategy and long term growth? Again, re- revisit that as well. One of the things I spoke to to someone about, and, and they asked if I was to do it, if I was to do it all again, what would I, you know, with the knowledge that I have now? I'd say I said, get good work or a business. Like first thing is to get good serviceability you know, work on, on sustainability, earn as much as you can invest in high yielding properties uh, that allow you to then, well, for me, it was to be able to do my own business. So it was really invest in high yielding properties, then, then, then branch into then development as well. But the high yielding properties, whether you're working or you had the income from high yielding properties, it's going to be able to provide you the buffer, but when you go into development, as we talked about this before, development when you start out, you know, payday is months, sometimes years, years apart. So it's things like that where you know, like I said, in in hindsight, well, with just more knowledge now, I would have done things differently. So, you know, you listening, our listeners listening to podcasts like this educating themselves allows them to leverage off experience that's over 10 20 no I'm only 25 10 20 maybe 30 years of experience from other people that have gone through all the all the mistakes and the learning and be able to go if I did it all again how what would I have done differently
1: definitely definitely and I think that's a good segue, right? Um, Ultimately, if you know what type of properties that you're going to buy, um, the most important question that you're going to ask yourself is what price point? And so you've spoken to your broker, you've identified what sort of property or what sort of property is required by your property portfolio. What price point? Identifying the price point is one of the key things, right? You know, people have service abilities of a million dollars, that doesn't mean that you should go out and buy a million dollar property, right? And so what property is worth buying? You know, should I buy a cheap property, an expensive property, a blue-chip property, or a regional property? I think some of these questions need to be answered up front. And again, it comes back to the strategy, right? As to, okay, what are you trying to achieve? Is it short-term growth? Is it mid, medium to long-term growth? Is it high yield? Is it development potential? Is it mix of all those three things together? These questions would come in time and time again from you to answer some of these things.
0: And I bet you get this question often. Say someone can afford to buy a million dollars worth of property. They will saying, do I buy one property or do I buy two $500,000 properties?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very relevant question, right? And, it, it, and there is a few ways to answer this question. Number one is, of course, diversification plays a really big part. And so if you can split that million dollars into two, and chase a higher yield, then, you know, that makes a lot more sense. The second most important thing when a person asks me this question is, I look at the property portfolio and I ask them, how fast can you save for the next deposit, right? Because ultimately the scalability of your property portfolio basically comes from that next deposit that you would need for your property number three and property number four. On average, a home, uh, uh, a household takes about two and a half years to save for a deposit. Okay, even husband and wife, which means that if you want to put your property portfolio in the and buy one property a year, you need to focus on short-term growth. And so would a million dollar property give you that short-term growth is the question while it's still being quite significantly negatively geared, right? And so that's the most important thing. And so from my perspective, every time a first-time investor asks me this question, I always say to them, look, your problem right now is short-term growth and yield, you know, those are the two things that you should be focused on. Don't worry about developments. Don't worry about, you know, um, you know, I want to be a big developer because that's far away for you, right? Your focus should be that I want to scale up my property portfolio, create a lot of equity for myself so that I have better moving space, you know, for property number three and property number four. And that's where you would, you know, usually come back and start going for development properties or properties with multiple exit strategies. If you don't catch that short term growth, your property portfolio basically stagnates and that's what happens to a lot of people who have one or two properties, right? Because they buy two properties, they don't catch short-term growth, they don't buy anything for seven, eight, nine years because they don't have that deposit saved at all. And and so it's an interesting cycle to think about as to, okay, are you going to chase cash flows at the start or are you going to chase short-term growth and a cash flow that is enough to basically keep your portfolio sustainable, okay? there is this massive talks about you should always buy a positively geared property, right? Everyone talks about cash flow positive property, right and so you should never buy a negatively geared property. And I my question to them always is that does that mean that you should never buy something in Melbourne and Sydney, right because everything you touch in in Melbourne and Sydney is typically negatively geared. The idea is not that you don't buy a negatively geared property. The idea typically is that, you should be okay buying a negatively geared property, provided that your overall portfolio is still sustainable and is still net positive. Right. Basically, that's the mentality and that's the mindset. Of course, every development property that you're going to touch would be a negatively geared property because there is not enough income. And yes, there would be ways for you to convert it into a positively geared property. But, you know, there would be a short span of time, maybe 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, where this property is going to cost you money to hold. And so how do you have that bigger lens and a bigger picture where you still add negatively geared properties in your property portfolio, especially in a blue chip suburb, so that you can come back to these properties and develop them, et cetera, in the future while still keeping your overall portfolio quite sustainable and so call, consistent.
0: Yeah, uh, absolutely. So it is again going where this uh, and doing the numbers around that, right? You need to understand the numbers. And you need to understand the growth patterns and the income patterns. So, doing a almost a almost like a a, a profit and loss and a charting out where your assets are.
1: Hundred percent.
0: If you have a spreadsheet, like yeah, there's lots of calculators out there that can help you do that. Assess it, like really assess, like from a growth perspective and from an income perspective, is is property actually performing? And if you balance out then the rest of your portfolio, so you've got a portfolio of, you know, 10 properties and you've got one which, yeah, negatively get, but then the growth is fabulous, which allows you to tap into the equity to purchase other, you know, other properties, then maybe that's okay.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, you know, naturally, when you think about people, right, a lot of these decision making happens as a water cooler conversations or a barbecue conversations. There is no, Logical thinking behind this, right? And I think that's the most important thing that a lot of people either buy because of this fear of missing out or they don't buy because of the fear of overpaying, right? And so either they are chasing the bottom of the market or they're buying at the top of the market. You know, people don't think logically that there is markets within markets and you know, you should buy when you are ready to buy, regardless of what the market is doing or the market is dictating. You know, no matter who tells you over a big conversation they have 10 or 15 properties, you need to do your number crunching yourself and assess your risk mitigation and your risk appetite and your financial circumstances and, and assess, you know, whether this is the right time for you to buy and what sort of properties that you should be buying for. So making this decision as emotionless as possible and as logical as possible and as evidence-based as possible is quite the key as well.
0: The part around not being emotionally attached is a really strong one what have you found in your experience where you've seen investors buy on emotion and not on necessarily being objective or, or, or logical
1: I think typically look I mean if you ask any investor I've never heard an investor say that I'm going to make an emotional decision right You ask them, they would be like, oh, I'm all over the numbers. You know, I love numbers. You know, I'm going to make the most logical decision possible, right? That's where they start, but that's not where they end. And the reason they don't end there is because one, they have done a lot of paralysis analysis before they're going to buy into this property or before they've decided to buy this property. And so they've waited months and months. And then now either the FOMO is kicked in or a FOP is kicked in or fear of missing out or fear of overpaying is kicked in. And so typically the frustration causes them to move from logical investing to emotional investing. Basically, that's what kicks in. And so they don't even realize that they've made an emotional decision after they have made that decision that, oh, okay, I was so frustrated that I was like, I just wanted to end this, you know. And so typically that's what happens, you know, every time that I see people making the decisions, I never see an investor saying, oh, I'm going to go out and make a very emotional decision of buying an investment property. It's the frustration that basically kicks in and causes them to make this decision.
0: And um, so what are, the, what are some really good strategies for someone to be able to ensure that they're assessing that level of emotion or objectivity? Like what, what are some really helpful tools that they can, they can use to check themselves?
1: The first and foremost is making sure that they have a budget in place, right? So don't stick to the budget and don't sway away from the budget, number one. Number two is understand what sort of market that you're operating in. Is it a buyer's or a seller's market? You know, cheap is not always good. You know, you need to pay a fair price for the property. Yes, there is ways to negotiate the property down. And that's what, you know, buyers agents or, you know, specialist negotiators would do. But if you don't have that skill set, hire that skill set, right? But if you have that skill set, don't try to squeeze every dollar out of, you know, when you're going into a property acquisition phase, make sure that you buy in an area where there are 50 people trying to buy in that pocket, right? And so if you buy in that pocket and you are basically sending 49 people frustrated out of that equation, these 49 people would come back into that same suburb and push the price up. And even if each one of them feels frustrated with every equation and pays an extra $1,000, that's the $50,000 that's gone up in the suburb valley and the price, right? I always say this to people that I want to buy in an area that is where is there is a lot of competition because I know that when I'm going to sell, there would be a lot of competition. I want my property where there are 50 people fighting for this property and I am the person buying it at a fair price. I think that's the key thing. That's the key word, at a fair price. Because I know that when I'm going to sell, these 50 people would be here fighting for this property again and they are going to push the sub-value and the sub median of this particular price up. You know, so don't go into that mentality of I'm going to buy cheap because you are going to come out frustrated. Fix to your, you know, set up your budgets, know your due diligence process, have a checklist in place, you know. Do a checklist, you know, tick, 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 you know. And then make a reasonable checklist, right. And so don't go with the $500,000 budget buying in Darlinghurst or Turak or Brighton, right? <laughs> That's just silliness, right? Don't try doing that. It just doesn't make any sense. You know, people, and it, it, this is funny, right? I've seen people who try that and they think that they've got it only to realize that that they bought at that property that they shouldn't have bought in the first place. Because understand that in suburbs, no one would sell on the price product regardless of what the market is, right? And so it's important to understand that you know it's all about fair pricing. It's not just about oh, I'm going to buy a property hundred thousand dollar under market price. Yes, it's possible. Yes, it happens. But you are not always going to be that lucky. You don't hit unicorns every time, or
0: don't hit unicorns. Don't <laughs> the unicorns, Moss? It. Well, we're, we're all animal friendly around here.
1: <laughs> and last but not the least, right have an exit strategy in place. You know, what if your financial circumstances change? You know, what do you plan to do? I was talking to a mortgage broker today and they made a really important point. You know, there was a husband and wife where the wife was planning to go on a mat leave and all they were focused on was, oh, we want to buy an investment property so that, you know, when she goes on mat leave, the serviceability disappears. And so we have bought something in place. And the only question the mortgage broker ask is, yes, your savings ability would disappear, but so would your income. You do realize that. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't be making the same amount of money. So you do realize that, you know, your saving levels are not that great. You would be in some sort of financial mess if you think about this. It's simple questions that matters the most sometimes, right? Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I guess that they that they sort of think that if it's an investment property. It will pay most of the it will pay off most of the the interest anyhow. Was was that the the logic
1: around that? Yes, but I think people don't think about buffers, right? You know, when I do property strategies for people, people have zero buffers in their life. You know, they live paycheck t- paycheck to paycheck. I'm just surprised as to you know people making decent money live paycheck to paycheck. You know, they don't understand, you know, that they need to have a buffer in place to ride the waves for property investing. You can't just live with a zero dollar mindset. Oh, 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 I have $10,000 in my bank account. It should see me through a month, you know, everyone should have an X month of buffer in their portfolio. Look, my buffer is super high. You know, I say to my wife all the time, my buffer is almost close to about nine to 10 months of my income, right? And the reason it's high is because I I am a risk taker. I take too much risk, right? And so I need that buffer to be there so that it allows me to keep taking these risks in property development space. And so I keep that buffer aside. I never change that buffer. And for people who, everyone's buffer would be different. You know, for some people, it might be 50,000 or 40,000, depending on how much risk are you taking in your life. And so naturally, people are so focused on... Buying properties that they don't think about, you know, these financial implications in their own personal life. Right. So
0: that's really, that's a really good point in terms of a, a buffer. It, you know, one exit strategy, but what is a buffer? Like, you know, most of us wouldn't even think to have a buffer, which you are, you know, in business, you're told to have at least three to six months worth of a buffer in your, your savings account to ensure that we should be doing a similar thing for ourselves.
1: Yeah. And look, anything can happen, right? You know, from my perspective, I always think that God forbid if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, what would my family do? Yes, the insurance would kick in, but insurance doesn't kick in next day. It would take months and months of you know for them to basically come back. And so I have all of this debt, and you know, by the time a funeral happens, my wife would probably be cursing this idiot who died and left all of this debt.
0: If you didn't die, I would have killed you anyhow.
1: So, like, you know, you need to think, as I said, you know, it's the simplest things that would answer and provide you a lot more confidence in making these decisions a lot easier decision making. We would go through that thinking process in a structured fashion. Any parting words, Cheryl?
0: Well, I think the main thing is that this this topic is incredibly relevant in our current market. I feel that a lot of people did quite well, fluked in a way. They were very lucky that the, the property market in Australia pretty much saved us all from financial doom, And so they've got a bit of equity and they've probably purchased a property on hot or they're looking to purchase their next property. So all these questions and the things that we've spoken about are incredibly relevant. And we want we want our listeners to be informed, make the right decisions and make, make them with people as well. I so said, don't be afraid. To have experts surrounding you, it doesn't mean you're a dummy, right? I often say I'd rather be the dumbest person in the room or surround myself with incredibly smart people. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. Often I'm not, anyhow. So it because it means that you're surrounded by people who can help you in your decision-making. So I hope that it's been been valuable and that there are actionable steps that, our listeners can take to make those decisions around their next properties. I'd love to hear, with, oh, which of these takeaways that you've implemented, and that um, and what, what you know, what you've you've done out of that.
1: Definitely, one hundred percent. And as I said at the start of the episode, you know, if you're looking for any tools in relation to the wealth creation metrics, the strategy tools, the portfolio fixes. Anything in relation to helping you make an evidence based, emotionless decision, please reach out to me or Cheryl and we can definitely guide you in the right direction. Thank you for listening to us. Take care, stay safe, keep smiling. This is Cheryl and I'm checking out. Adios.
0: Bye.